We're afraid that we're potential converts. There might be a way in which a sort of the totalitarianism that we see in Peterson actually is part of the mainstream left. Yo, yo, yo. Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And we are going to do our patron-chosen episode this week. We're going to be tackling the Zizek-Peterson debate that was a pretty big, at least social media, phenomenon I don't know. Was it a bigger cultural phenomenon? I guess we'll get into that, Troy. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I've definitely heard about it a lot, but uh, I don't know if it's <laughs> permeated the rest of culture, although I wouldn't be disappointed if it did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, And we're really stoked because we have two guests on, Heidi Matthews and David Slavik. Heidi is a former, former guest of the show. You guys will know her. She's a law professor in Toronto. Uh, David is a producer, a former producer at least, of the Michael Brooks show, um, as well as pretty prominent online personality, former organizer, educator his whole life, that kind of good pedigree. And they are a power couple, newly married within the last you know, six months or something of that sort. And they were actually there, live, in the audience in Toronto to witness the debate. So they are going to come on and break everything down, distill things, and uh, and whatnot. And just a heads up, uh, we're recording the intro and like the shitty minute and the sticky leaves after. But Troy had to come in a little late. Uh, so that's why you won't hear him at the outset. So I don't want to disappoint people and think that we were ignoring Troy. He came in a little bit late. And I wasn't protesting. Uh, and it wasn't, yeah, yeah. So cool. So yeah, so we'll get into that in a little bit. Before we do that, we got to address a few things, uh, programming reasons. First of all, uh, we've noted in the podcast before that if you leave us a five-star rating on iTunes, uh, soon to be Apple Podcasts, then, and if you ask a question in that review, then we will try to address it in a minute or two on the podcast. And we have a couple of those to do. Um, first of all, we have... A review from JT, and JT says that he loves the show, and he loves when we cover Christianity and communities of faith from a non-theistic leftist perspective. Thank you, JT. Appreciate that. Um, mm. He asks, with uh, so much content out there and not enough time to go around, it's tough to hunker down and explore a single theme and writer. I'm mm. wondering if you have any more tips for the casual connoisseurs with so much fascinating work out there. How and when do you tend to choose to dive deep into a single work or theme? Is that something you'd recommend for people with more superficial exposure to philosophy? Any thoughts on that, Austin? I am the worst person <laughs> to ask about this. I am such a fucking scatterbrain. Like, my day yesterday, I'll just tell you how it started. It started with me reading Ovid's Metamorphoses uh, over a cup of coffee. And then I transitioned to reading a book by James Buchanan called Cost and Choice. And then I went and saw, I got my new spectacles, so I went and saw a movie, because we've also got the Sydney Film Fest going on, called Monos, uh, which is a parable of like South American travails and in, in, in then dealing with imperialism and the effect it's had on the local terrain. Then I went to a coffee shop and I was listening to a lecture series and taking notes on a book on the philosophy of 
economics or the philosophy of the market. So my day went from like ancient Roman poetry to public choice theory to cinema to fucking philosophy. So I am the worst person to ask. It does explain why you are the way you are, though. Because I just love everything, man. Panphilia, <laughs> dude. I just want to feel it all. <laughs> yeah, you know, what about I, have you? A, I have problems that are kind of opposite of yours in that I tend to get hyper-focused on a single book or texts, and I won't move on until I finish it, which is wonderful when you're really into it because then you just kind of speed through it and you could dive really deep and get a lot out of it. But then when you have a text which you kind of feel like you need to read more than want to then Mm. you tend to start vacuuming the house and listening to basketball podcasts and (laughs) other things (laughs) like that um so i think there's a good balance to be found where uh first of all i mean maybe this is just being ocd but keep lists lists of just gonna say that priorities yeah things that you really want to read and need to read make a hierarchy a priority list and just make sure you balance them out in such a way that you're not going to bog yourself down, you're not going to make yourself exhausted, and you're going to keep mm. yourself entertained. So if you got to throw in something that's more for fun in there every once in a while in between academic texts, do that to keep yourself interested and keep yourself habitually reading during the times of the day when you want to be reading and not mm. doing other shit. So um, find that that really good balance and keep yourself organized so that you don't end up uh, just kind of flying by the seat of your own inclinations. Yeah. What do you think about like downloading a typical intro to philosophy syllabus and then following the readings? The problem is a lot of them miss out on a lot of uh, female philosophers, a lot of um, international philosophers, a lot of post-colonial stuff that isn't generally considered part of the Western philosophical canon for to its own uh, detriment. But what do you think about just like starting with Socrates, reading some of Plato's dialogues, uh, then going to like Aristotle, and then maybe some uh, like Neoplatonists, and then maybe some medieval philosophy? What do you think about just kind of working it chronologically as is typically done in the Western canon as a, as a good trajectory? Do you think that there's value in that? Yeah, there could be. You know, people, like students often ask like, what do I do now? I'm interested in philosophy, taking the class, whatever. What should I dive into next? And I, maybe I, you need to be 70 years old to be wise enough to answer this question properly, but it just seems like there's no right answer. Like pretty much everybody who's gotten into philosophy has just started reading what interested them. And then yeah. you kind of circuitously make your way through as much of the history of philosophy as you can. Um, and you dive deep on certain things, but you dive shallow on others. Hopefully not dive. Don't dive mm. shallow, you hit your head, but you know, wade shallow in other areas. And it just kind of seems to me like maybe that's just the way that it has to be because mm. you're always going to be in the fog a little bit, if not a lot of it. So don't be afraid of diving deep into things that are a little bit too much for you. As long as you mm. feel like you're getting something from it and it's challenging you and um, you're interested. As long as you're interested, keep going. Um, you'll have to reread it. You'll read other things and come back to the first thing, and it'll have a new, you know, enlightened aspect to it. But don't be afraid to kind of just follow the muse and and see where it takes mm. you. As long as you're doing it in a purposeful way and you're getting something from it and you're interested, you're not wasting your time. Um, so yeah, yeah a- ask people for advice. You know, even just like 
go on Reddit and look for, you know, Reddit ask philosophy answers that uh, and see what comes up the most, even if you want to do it as, as superficial as that, um, as your kind of strategy. But as long as you have some sort of um, purpose and goal in mind, then I don't know that there's really, really that sort of bad of an answer that can be given there. Cool. Cool. All right. What's the next question? Our next one, this is definitely more for you. Uh, it's from mm. Chris P. Carroll. And uh, Chris says that he uh, enjoys the show and that he's heard us slag off about choice theory on an ad hoc basis a couple times and that it resonated with him. He says he works in public health and uh, nudging is accepted as a fait accompli. It's accepted without question. But in terms of population health, this framework obfuscates the important determinants of health in a society. Scholars such as Fran Baum, do you know who that is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've written on this, but I was just wondering if there are any episodes in your back catalog that delve into a critique of choice theory or even if you could recommend any texts that might be of relevance. Interesting. Uh, so I am, like I mentioned just a minute ago, I'm literally working through a James Buchanan text right now that is not a critique of choice theory because he is one of the uh, kind of godfathers of public choice theory. Critiques. Um, actually, you know, and it's, this is going to sound really strange, maybe, but you know what's a really great critique? The Trap. It's a documentary by Adam Curtis. It's a documentary series that you can find on YouTube. Um, type in Adam Curtis, The Trap, one, and that'll get you to the first one. I think the first one's called, like, Fuck You, Buddy. And he basically looks at uh, game theory. He looks at the rise of public choice theory, the influence of James Buchanan on... Uh, uh, on uh, what's her face, Margaret Thatcher, and on like Reaganite era politics from a pretty con- a pretty critical perspective. Um, if you're really interested in a, I would say radical problematization of choice theory, it's a little bit maybe obscure how it ties together. But I would look at uh, John Roth's abstract market theory. Now, it's going to be a tough read, but the reason that it's problematic is because it contests the very sufficiency of the idea of choice that's put forth by Buchanan and others. Another another resource, actually, now that I think about it, is Michel Fair's new book, Rated Agency, in which he doesn't maybe explicitly go into it as much as you might want, but he does contest um, the a lot of the uh, presuppositions of neoliberal economic policies that were buttressed by choice theory, precisely by looking at how it is that Buchanan um, and others were able to sort of um, bring in a, a type of conservatism, a social conservatism into uh, Chicago school type of economic uh, analysis. So, uh, Michelle Fair's rated agency, uh, John Roth's abstract market theory, and I would say start with that documentary series, The Trap by Adam Curtis. It's free on YouTube. Check it out. I, I can't remember. It's like f- a few episodes, at least three episodes. It might be more, but um, check those out. Yeah, anytime you can recommend Adam Curtis, I'm all about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's actually it's really good because he talks about game theory and John Nash in the first episode, and then uh, talks about 
basically the issue of turning humans into rational, hedonic calculators. And um, he then talks a little bit about like R.D. Lang and some psychoanalysis and how that sort of problematizes this supposed uh, presumption of rationality as we are like utility maximizing agents. Um, so it, it is it is an, an interesting um, way of, of kind of like uh, addressing choice theory from within, I would say, a sort of more visual journalistic form. It's fun. Yeah. So check that out. Sweet. All right. So thanks, Chris. And thanks, JT, for those questions. And I just want to add, if you've submitted a review and it's not for some reason being addressed on the show, it's possible it's getting lost in the uh, interwebs, inner tubes of iTunes. So just uh, email us or tweet us and let us know and we'll uh, figure that out for you. Sick. Also, just a shout out that we do have a Patreon account. So if you find value in what it is that we're producing and if you want access to the bonus content, uh, bonus audio, and as well as becoming a subscriber to our newsletter or being able to recommend future episodes like the one that we're going to jump into in a few minutes here, uh, go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. That's patreon.com slash owls at dawn. And you can find out how to become a patron so you can get access to that shit. Yeah, yeah. And now it's time to start the show. First thing is the shitty minute. This is where one of us gets to vent our frustrations about the chaos of the world. Troy, what are you going to vent about this week? So last weekend, I had the distinct privilege of flying on an airplane. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm struck by this every time. And I don't think this is unique to me. I think everybody kind of has this feeling at some point where you just marvel at the incredible feat of a giant hunk of metal flying in the air so easily. Mm. Like, I think everybody thinks about what if you had just shown this phenomenon to somebody, even mm. 80 to 100 years ago, they would just be dumbstruck, right? Mm. It just seems to, like, the ultimate, like, you know, Kantian sublime of just, oh my God, I, I just can't fit this into my epistemic system at all right it's such an amazing thing and i and i i don't fly super often but i've you know dozens of times and it's you know it strikes me every single time both during like liftoff uh and when you land at just how amazing this whole thing is and just kind of staring out the window i always get a window seat whenever i can because like just staring out the window and kind of mm. just meditating a little bit on the awesomeness of, of what's happening and you have that experience right You'd like, you'd like, where's the shitty minute, right? This is like a sticky leaf right here. Um, hmm. You see that. And then you also, this this time when I flew, I, I was thinking as we were kind of flying over um, uh, many tracts of land, it was a clear day. And I kept thinking, you know, especially over Los Angeles, every single thing that you're seeing here was pretty much built within the last 100 years. Hmm. Like everything. All, all the buildings, yeah. everything. That's incredible. All... Yeah the sort of incredible scope of and range of human history and everything I'm seeing from this incredible bird's eye view was built in the last 100 years. That's just mind boggling in terms of human achievement. And I'm seeing it from you know, thousands of feet up in the air. And you take that incredible feat, which really would be the kind of thing that somebody, anybody from the past would almost like give their like left arm to experience this, how amazing it is. Mm. And we human beings make it utterly miserable to do this mm. thing. 
this incredible thing. We make it suck as hard as possible <laughs> by just like packing us like sardines in a can. I, I flew Spirit Airlines, which I know is god awful, yeah. and it, I flew it because it was cheap, knowing it was going to be god awful. I wasn't pissed off that it was god awful because I knew it was going in. But they don't even give you food or water. Like you have to pay three bucks to have water. Yeah, and the the sort of you know leg room for a person as tall as myself is just it's unacceptable and we take this incredible thing that human ingenuity has produced and then we just make it suck so hard to make you dread doing it like this should be the highlight of a trip oh my god i get to like fly in the air in a giant metal machine oh no that's like mm. the part you're dreading the most especially coming back because you're already tired or whatever right and it just makes me kind of marvel at this incredible contradiction of of human ingenuity beyond the, any balance you could possibly imagine combined with because we need to make or some people need to make a profit off of this um, we're going to make this incredible thing suck incredibly hard right mm. and like some things you can't do anything about that like going to the doctor right going to the doctor and having the doctor do some magic and then resolve whatever <laughs> infirmities you have is also an incredible mm. feat right but then it also sucks, totally. like you don't want to do it. Um, but that's because, you know, we haven't been able to, like, solve the issue of pain, <laughs> right? That's, like, a thing mm. we can't solve, or at least have not been able to solve yet. Um, whereas this, mm. is, this doesn't have to be, this is contingently horrible, right? This experience mm. of flying. So, yeah, I, I was struck this weekend by that, in, that kind of dizzying, absurd contradiction what are your thoughts this is on where flying? we took a wrong wrong turn with the blimps man we should have just had fucking like zeppelins flying all yeah, over dude. the air zeppelins are awesome what's up those things look bad i mean now granted there's also the luxury that i'm adding into the meaning of it like i'm picturing like a cocktail party like flying over fucking germany <laughs> or something like that <laughs> you know that's every movie but still blimp, yeah yeah exactly exactly but man those things look so badass do we hate blimps because we associate them with the Nazis because of Indiana Jones? Exactly. Or the Rocketeer. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the fucking Hindenburg, too, you know? But, yeah. You know, just to add an element of pain to this, Ryanair is an, an EasyJet, our discount airlines in Ireland and the UK, right? Um, oh, yeah. And... Ryanair recently, because they fly a lot between like London and Manchester, Dublin and London, and they're like 45-minute little commuter trips that business people do oftentimes Monday through Friday. So they live in one city and they have to go to like, I don't know, they have to fly to Newcastle or whatever for business every day or whatever. So what they've done is they've – I don't remember if they did this or if they just proposed it. I don't know if it's actually been implemented yet. So hit us up and let us know if they did. But – they were talking about removing like the first third of the seats and then basically just putting in um, like benches. Now, you don't like sit down fully, but you actually kind of stand up where you're just kind of like leaning against it and you just kind of like lean your butt on it, you know, rather than actually sitting down fully because that would take up too much space because that's a chair. But it's actually more like a standing just so you, you just you're not fully standing but you're able to like lean your butt on it and they were able to increase like something like 20 or 30 percent occupancy in these flying tubes and i just think like that just shows you what lengths they're willing to go to 
to make money at the expense of comfort. <laughs> you know, they're like, fuck it, let's just remove comfortable chairs that aren't even really that comfortable anyway because they're too upright and there's no leg room and you're too cramped. And if you're in any way bigger than like, like I'm at the threshold where it's still uh, doable. I'm a little bit over six foot and I weigh like 170, 175 pounds, right? So for me, like, I'm like at the limit where that's it. If you're much bigger than I am, it is radically uncomfortable, either in height or in width. Then it is just radically uncomfortable. And basically what they've done is rather than try to make it more comfortable, they're like, well, fuck it. We'll just, you know, it's a short trip. So who cares? We'll just cram as many people like fucking sardines as we can. You know, it's fucking crazy. It is absolutely crazy. Yeah. It's the best symbol for, uh, yeah, for just the, the need for profit over, uh, pleasure or human comfort or no whatever, but the pleasure good. that they do offer they would say in return is that you pay like you know 40 bucks for a flight or whatever 40 quid for a flight so yeah i guess in the uk that's the case but even in the u.s now it's several hundred dollars for any flight whatsoever well in the way that ryan air and easy jet get you is they'll charge you 40 quid for a return flight but that's only for a carry-on and if you want to check a bag it's exorbitant you know? Yeah, they'll get you on the small fees. Absolutely. And it's like, do you want to buy insurance? And do you want to book your own seat? If you want to book your own seat, you have to pay for that. And there are all these extra upcharges that they're constantly trying to sell you. And a lot of times you accidentally will click one and you don't realize on the website that you've clicked a surcharge until you get to checkout. And you're like, wait, I thought it was only supposed to be like 40. Why is it like 85? <laughs> you're like, what happened? And then you have to make sure that you uh, un unclick it. But I, I bet you they get a lot of people just not paying attention because they're tired or they're in a rush or something like that. Or they just didn't read carefully and they like get quick little, you know, they make a quick little 50%, 70% upcharge here. So I know. Yeah. Airlines should be Comptians, man. Come truth, Do you man. think that there's a, there, there's a route one day for a nationalized airline that like travel just becomes so integral as a public good that it's almost a public utility kind of like trains? in public transportation on the ground level? Do you think you could do that with air travel? Hopefully not because of how inefficient it is in terms of fuel. You've got to have those fucking right. bullet trains that Japan has, man. Yeah, but you can't take a bullet train to Japan from California, right? So you still have to have air travel. I mean, you say that, but underwater trains are like the most badass <laughs> thing I've ever heard of in my life. That's true. That I want to like, so see Aquaman and shit when I'm down there. That's so badass. I mean, they've got those floating bridges in Norway and elsewhere around the world. Just do yeah, one dude. of those from here to fucking Japan. And have Wait, it, did, uh, did Snowpiercer go under the water? Uh, I don't should remember have. if it goes. It should have. I mean, it would have been Jun like Ho? a frozen lake. Snowpiercer too. Yeah. By the way, I'm going to see his new movie on Saturday night, Parasite. Oh, I can't wait, dude. I've heard such great things. Holy shit. Okay, sorry. That has dude, did to do you see the new... Um, uh, the Babadook, Jennifer Kent, the Nightingale. I, is that what it's called? Nightingale. No, I, I, I think you either sent me a link or you tweeted about it. Because it premiered at the that, Sydney but... Film Festival. That's what you're going to, right? Oh, that's right. It did. Yeah. No, I've I've been going. It's already it's going on right now. I saw a film last night called Monos. I saw Angelo uh, on Wednesday. I'm seeing a documentary tomorrow night. Friday, I'm seeing a film called Baccarat, which is a Brazilian film. And then Saturday, I'm seeing Parasite. Oh, uh, dude, yeah. Make sure you let me know how Parasite was. I can't wait. The, the problem is, is there's like fucking 300 films. And I just don't have the time <laughs> to go see them all, you know? But I yeah, would. Yeah. 
Like even yesterday, it was like last minute. I just was like, because I got my new glasses and I was like, I'm so excited. I can see, you know, things from a distance now. I was like, I'm going to get a ticket. Even if I'm in the back row, which I was because the seats were pretty much sold out. I was like, even if I'm in the back row, it's going to be an amazing immersive experience because now my eyes, I can see like Spider-Man. I've got Spidey vision. <laughs> so, but yeah, man, I feel you. It's so tough. I love I love the experience of, like you say, that meditative experience of being above the clouds. And and for me physically, I don't have the discomfort that somebody that's, you know, like 6'3 and up might have on the flight. Um, or even somebody that's huskier than I am because I'm pretty lean. And so for me, I can still just, like, yeah, it's not the most comfortable, but I can still, I can get by, Right. Um, You're also like the kind of, the kind of asshole who like makes best friends with everybody next yeah, to you on the plane, right? I do, I do. Oh, sometimes, I mean, I you can tell sometimes when people don't want to talk. <laughs> but I have actually made yeah. Pretty, you take the cues. You're not you're not that guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Like I've actually made a lot of interesting. Kind of, I've had like dates with uh, people that I've met, like both people that worked at the airline <laughs> and people in seats. I've made like business contacts. I've had people be like tour guides. I've had mentorship relationships that I've met with like older dudes that I've met on the oh flight. So I've had, I fucking love flying for that experience. But you're right. If they could make it a little bit better otherwise, then it would just be like fucking transcendent. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sick. So now we're going to jump into our main segment of the patron-led choice, which is to chat about the Zizek and Peterson debate. And I'm stoked to have on the newest uh, Twitter-left power couple, Heidi Matthews and David Slavik have joined us to chat about this. What's up, guys? Uh, Not much. Just uh, getting over the near win last night here in Toronto. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, a near win is... Well, actually, I wanted try to, to ask you that. You is that are, are you a, are you a Warriors fan? They're well, pretty great. I mean, let's I like the honest. way they play. Yeah, I, I love the way they play, especially the way they play without Kevin Durant. Because when he's in the game, they you know they kind of rely on isolation yeah. ball a little bit more. But I love I love the the motion in the offense. I love the way they shoot threes. I mean. It fits in well with the way that I used to play basketball because I'm basically a, a slow white boy that used to just run off screens and catch and shoot. So I'm like a much, much, much less athletic version of Clay. I can't dribble, but I can so, catch and shoot. So right? a big uh, <laughs> confession here, I'm a little bit of a slasher. I'm like a 15 point and then sort of like three or four. So, yeah. Okay. But uh, I didn't have the guts yeah, yeah. for the well, three. Okay, yeah, see, that was basically my game was, uh, was that. So for me, I look at the, the Warriors and I love the way they play. But, um, you know, I'm a Laker fan, so Western Conference, they're competitors, so I guess, I mean, I don't really have any hate, but yeah, I'm, I'm not really a, a Warriors fan. But I'm pulling for the Raptors because, you know, I'd like to see some new blood in the, at the top Plus, of the Plus, you, you want, the you the want the, you, Australia to get their own team, and the, the fastest way to do that is get, to get a championship outside of the U.S. Either, fuck, could you imagine, though, trying to come <laughs> to Australia? It's like a 17-hour time difference between the West Coast. There's like no way. If you were an L.A. team, it would be the worst trip ever to have That's to come to hope. Australia to play an away game. I know. So I mean, I figure there's already a couple of Aussies. There's, you know, Andrew Bogut on the Warriors right now. He's, he's a famous uh, Aussie ball player. Ben Simmons, of course. So, you know, I figure there's, they've already got, they can export their talent I to the league. I forgot Ben and Simmons They'll be satisfied. Australia. 
Yeah, I know he. Yeah, it's because he played college ball uh, in the states. So, so, but yeah, he's uh, he's Aussie. Well, I would so. I would uh, like Leonard over Simmons. <laughs> All right, so let's jump into the chat. I mean, I'm stoked more than anything to have you guys on because you guys. Beyond the fact of your credentials and knowledge and all that other stuff that everybody already knows, you guys were there. You guys were in the audience for the Zizek and Peterson debate. And there was some talk beforehand that you guys were going to dress up. <laughs> did you guys Did you guys dress up? So it ended up being that the day of the debate was like torrentially raining and everyone was like lining up outside the venue to get in. So then we and we were also a little hungover. So the energy, one does. <laughs> the energy behind that plan um, started to wade a little bit. Uh, okay. But there's still there's still a thought that we might do it down the road. David, um, David's the star of that impersonation duo for sure. He's a very close approximation of Zizek, um on a on a oh gosh Zizek on a bad day. Let's say I, I promise you that okay. Uh, so Zizek, I thought was actually a bigger person. Um, like physically, physically, oh, he's a, no, no, he's, he's a actually, tiny, he's a tiny human, he's a very big person as far as like, old, but, um, and his sort of kindness. About that. Yeah. We'll but talk about I'm, that. I'm a, I'm a huge man. I'm six, five, two fifty, um, from rural Pennsylvania, uh, but via DC and, uh, corn, corn fed, corn as, fed they as they say, say, you know, like they said, they got cow shit on their feet if you will. Oh. and, uh, That's right. you know, I take up a door. So when I saw Zizek being a little smaller than I thought, I was like six foot five in his actual soul. Mm. What is how big? How tall do you think he is? About like five eight. Yeah, yeah, like maybe. And he's also yeah. very hunchy looking. He is. He's kind of. Did you guys see that that uh, viral video of him like mowing down the hot dogs? Yes. Two weeks before. <laughs> so for the like viral that kind video of that we were going to do for the surfs. TV, which uh, I recommend. Which maybe we'll still do. The surf's TV. We'll do it for them. We actually had it all planned out. We had the hot dog stand planned. We had the right spot right by the University of Toronto. And uh, I was so excited to eat a hot dog because, uh, you know, we kind of eat semi vegan here. So. <laughs> <laughs> if you watch that video, I think you get a pretty good insight too about his stature because you see him yeah. next to other humans in Toronto and you're kind of like, all right, he's not. A, a big person. It's one of those things. It's it's always so weird. I actually did an interview with him for Wisecrack about uh, God. It was about a year ago, I guess. Um, maybe maybe a little less. But I did an interview with him, and I realized at the time kind of how little he was. Even though it's through the internet, it was because like his wife was in the background and stuff like that. And I was like, oh God, I guess I never really thought about it because I'm so used to reading him through the books and just on like YouTube videos or hearing his voice. And he does seem like a giant. And it's one of those things where it's like when you find out that Tom Cruise is really super short or when you find <laughs> out that like these action heroes like Tom Hardy and his Bane isn't really like six foot seven, but they make him look like that because he's standing on apple crates or whatever. It's uh, it's kind of something similar. What, what about Peterson? He seems to be like, is he probably like what, 5'10, 5'11? No, kind of I think he's 6'3. No. I don't, he has rod straight posture. Yeah. Uh, he's got this like hip sort of disposition where it's sort of thrust forward in a way that gives him an extra. Uh, he's not <laughs> huh. bending his knees and it looks like his ankles hurt. Like that's the level of like sort of like daddy posture situation he is on. And wow. it makes you really think about. You had an overbearing parent. I, I didn't have a military. Parent. 
You know, I mean, like I know that mm. it really be different for them. But like, if you had a dad no. who was in the Marines, like, you stand up straight, you're gonna end up gay. This guy did it. Well, it's funny you make the military comparison because I did come from a military family. My father wasn't. <laughs> Yeah, but my father didn't, but grandparents and beyond, right? And even though my father didn't, my father is always one of those guys that he actually got a scholarship to play basketball in, God, I don't remember if it was the Naval Academy or the Air Force Academy. I think it was the Air Force Academy, but he turned it down because he didn't want to serve for four years because he just wanted to like party and do drugs and hook up with chicks, right? So that was his choice at the time. Um, uh, And so, but nevertheless, he still has that, especially after then later in his life, he converted to Christianity. He then became a sort of intensified type of military figure, right? Like he he always had the discipline, like clean your room, mow the lawn. Like I guess his stepdad even uh, would like make sure that the lawn was measured to the perfect half inch or whatever the fuck the measurement was, right? And so like my dad was always very type A and he still is very type A. But then post-Christian, then it became like a moral type A. And so when I see Peterson, I'm very much – at home like i one i get it i can sympathize with people who are like attracted to him because it's a dad figure that maybe you didn't have or there's something about that rigid get your shit together kind of mentality that is appealing um in certain ways i guess for certain people and people at certain phases of their life or whatever but for me it's almost like i see through it you know what i mean like it's like i can understand the structural constitution that is taking place that is th- that body that Having human the Peterson that person Matrix moment. <laughs> that's exactly it man i see the zeros and ones like all on his face that's exactly it i see the code you know so okay well cool well i guess I first mean, thing I, saw I, I, the I, code I, too well that's so let's, let's get into <laughs> it so so what first things first um what was the atmosphere like yeah that's interesting i mean i was actually kind of pleasantly surprised. Like, I think it's true that it was, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think it was very, it was kind of overwhelmingly male, Mm -hmm. um, but not the kind of, I I mean, I think we all in our, anyone who spends too much time on the internet, like probably has (laughs) an idea, (laughs) an over-idealized idea or, or sort of concept of like what the, you know, prototypical Peterson accolade looks like. And it wouldn't be a very flattering picture, but actually I didn't really find that in the crowd. And so while it was like there were tons of dudes there, they were actually sort of, I wouldn't say it was dominated by Peterson. Well, that's the interesting thing I discovered about it because you know, I'm from a more rural area, and I, but I lived in the city for a long time. And I would go home to my friends in rural Pennsylvania and I would, I'd see that Peterson book on the table. <laughs> And I saw people I liked mm. reading that. And so I had a little more sympathy going in. And mm. when I looked around the room, I saw people who were like in pursuit. They were right. like searching. Yeah. But yes. Peterson was like maybe their entry point, but wasn't their end point. Yeah, I think that's right. Mm. That's really interesting. I mean, so I, I did another debate. It never got released um, for various reasons, but we did a sort of trial debate and it was for wisecrack again. And it was, it was more of a conversation, I guess you could say. Uh, but it was myself and then um, a woman who used to identify, I guess, as an SJW, as she calls it, right? And that she found Peterson as sort of a way of helping her navigate away from the quote-unquote regressive left, right? Like but Lindsay Shepard did, I guess. Uh, 
Yeah, it's similar, right? And and this girl has a has a has a profile online as well too, and she tweets about this kind of thing constantly. And one of the things that through the course of that conversation that just became solidified that I already had an intuition about is that the Peterson phenomenon is so similar to a phenomenon that I experienced. And when Troy gets on here in a couple of minutes, he could probably speak to this as well. When we were an undergrad at a private evangelical university in the middle of the 2000s, well, I guess like the knots, like the late knots, right? Um, when we were there, there was this movement in Christianity called the Emerging Church. Mm-hmm. And the Emerging Church was really obsessed with this what they perceived as being an imminent threat of postmodern cultural relativism. And so their response was, one, to write a slew of books, both from like academic preachery types, like a guy named D.A. Carson, who's a theologian preachery kind of dude. He wrote a book called Becoming Conversant with the Emerging Church. Uh, the other side was that the full embrace of this kind of uh, – postmodern, let's just syncretism. Like if you're an evangelical, you can still do Catholic liturgy and have a labyrinth in your church, but we'll also use U2 music instead of worship music because, you know, Bono's kind of a Christian-y kind of guy and I still haven't found what I'm looking for, still speaks to the urges of the soul or whatever, right? So you had one side that was totally like postmodern, liberal syncretism, and you had one other side that was like, no, let's hunker down and let's reassert the moral supremacies of for them, God, the issue from God. (laughs) Well, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and then, and then there was a kind of like a, a range in between those two. Peterson to me seems exactly just like a repetition of that, that latter experience, which is the let's resist postmodernism. Let's, well, first of all, mischaracter it, but let's, let's resist it. And then let's reassert the fact that we need these moral foundations, except for him, it isn't God, it's these Jungian archetypes or evolutionary psychology that he ultimately falls back on. So for me, it's actually really, really, really familiar. So I also have like an empathy with the people that are drawn towards Peterson, because I literally lived with them and was amongst them for a large portion of my kind of developing years. So I kind of I kind of always was like, look, I get what he's saying. I mean, and I get what he's trying to appeal to. And in a way, he's responding, I think, in in, in an inadequate way, but he's responding to a genuine concern that, that there is something felt out there that is the problem. It's just his diagnosis is wrong. It's capitalism. And then that's where Zizek comes in, right? Right. Um, so beyond that, I guess, what were your first impressions of the debate? Like, what, what, are you, what were your thoughts, you want, first impressions? Do you want to talk about walking in and seeing what it was like? Uh, yeah, I mean, we can do that like briefly. It was they had definitely set it up to be. I mean, what whoever their PR or marketing firm was was pretty talented. Like they had uh, set up the inside. I mean, we put pictures and stuff. I'm sure everyone has seen the pictures, but of kind of like a like a what what do they call it in wrestling? Like the, the yeah, big rumble sort of, or yeah, something. What a, they, had, <laughs> it had that WWE feel. It was like Jack versus Peterson, yeah. the Rumble of the Century. Um, as you uh, went into the um, big sort of theater, it's one of the biggest amphitheaters in Toronto. Uh, there's a the biggest line one in around Canada, the block, think, yeah. and that was they had pre-sales, so it wasn't like these people had tickets. It wasn't like waiting in line. So there's like two or three wow. lines going in. You go into this big amphitheater, two staircases that split off. It had this very like almost Athenian feel. As you go in, you see this big. It's the biggest actually, and I've been to pro sports games. Biggest. TV I've ever seen, and it's got Peterson's face on there and Zizek's face on there, and they look <laughs> like golden gods. 
and it really had this almost uh, like Greek mythology feel to it. You know, it's like Clash of the Titans. And when you go in, you could say like there was a sorting, almost like in a Harry Potter says the sorting hat scene, where mm. people were like, which side do we fall in on? <laughs> and that's what I felt. So the thing that I'll note mm. was like people were suspicious and sort of trying to feel each other out, like which, you know, looking at people going, which one are you? Sort of. And like mm. when we went in and sat down, there were, you know, people were kind of looking askance at each other. And during the first like what, 15 minutes, everyone would be, you know, cheering like people. It was pretty raucous, actually, yeah. in terms of the crowd cheering people. On. And I got yelled at. Yeah. So we got kind of we ended up being so someone yelled at David sort of by accident, I think, because they mistook you as being yeah. a Peterson fan, but then realized that you weren't, and then you made up. Yeah. You I, had this kind of like, it's okay, buddy. We're I all friends. I, I got a little aggro. I was like, never talk to me again. <laughs> did you just did you just stand up and then turn around at them and be like, I am a giant little <laughs> it's, human? It's not even about size. It's the, it's the, <laughs> it's the lizard eyes that I have. So that. <laughs> Yeah, if you can have the gaze, that's right. You just pierce into their soul and scare the shit out of them. Um, okay, so we did. We hosted a debate or a, a debate, an event here in Sydney, and we had like twenty, twenty-five people. And I'll be honest, the the experience that you describe in person translated, I think, quite well through social media and then through the actual live feed yeah. because it felt like they at least were trying to simulate. A huge rumble. Right. That's it. That's what it felt it's a like. Fractal. I mean, it was a Saturday. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. Exactly. And it was it was a Saturday morning here, nine o'clock in the morning, oh, no. and we had like twenty something people show up right. to come and hang. Which I mean, if you know anything about Aussies, you know they like to let loose a little bit on Friday night. So you know, it was it was like a sacrifice that people made so that they could come on a Saturday morning. And I've been involved with reading groups and all kinds of different events, and to get people to come on a fucking you know, Sunday afternoon, Tuesday afternoon or evening is difficult as shit, let alone Saturday morning at nine in the morning, you know? So it was it was impressive the pull that the event had, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it was, I mean, they were saying like that evening alone, the online viewers, like the ones who were actually paying, I think, I mean, I have to double check this, but I think it was like 1.5 million, like even that yeah. night alone had watched Holy shit. Yeah. I mean, if you think of it, that's a, that's a paying viewer. I know there was bootleg feeds out there. So if you do like your normal sort of like 20% is bootleg, that's still almost 2 million people who are yeah. watching. And then in person, it's in, it's in Canada. Like, God bless Canada, but it's a smaller market. Like the U.S. Yeah. And it still was packed in this huge arena, biggest arena in town. And it was just unbelievable. And people had traveled, like friends of ours, you know, had come up, uh, friends of ours who have a podcast in New York came up to cover it. You know, people had come from all over Canada. So we had a really mm. interesting time because we kind of walked into it beforehand with some really bright people in sort of the Canadian market. Andre. Yeah. You want me to say his last yeah. name because you mispronounced it? Yeah. <laughs> our friend uh, Andre Demise covered it for McLean's. Yeah. Our friend Clifton Mark covered it for Canada Land, right? Yeah. So they have some great takes out there as well. Yeah. So probably the two best pieces that we we saw actually were of our sort of friends in that part. So it was pretty cool. And then uh, we met up with some people from the New York scene. So what what were Clifton and Andre's takes? Because so for people that are listening, there was a really 
popular take, let's say, on Jacobin. <laughs> um, also, current current affairs did a sort of <laughs> yeah. They did a live tweet where they were sort of, like the current affairs one. I thought was just silly because Nathan just seems to be like somebody who doesn't either understand or like philosophy. And there was also so, a Benjamin Studebaker. And, and then I saw the Benjamin Studebaker one a couple days friend, later, which like, I thought, you know, like we like Benjamin. Uh, yeah. He's been on his show. Uh, I I like some of his work that he's written on his own blog. I have no problem with Benjamin. I have no problem with Nathan either. Um, I think besides his out, I do. I do. I will be a, a true confession. I I do think yeah. pieces on current affairs. That's fact. <laughs> Just in general, or yes. these ones? Uh, all of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, come on, man. This is fucking the age of contemporary capitalism. We got 15 minutes to read an essay. You know, 30, 35 minutes is too much on what I say. No. Um, yeah, I like I like the fact that current affairs exists as well. Um, I, and I think that it's an important outlet for distilling information, working through things as a commentary sort of editorial site. Um, I also like Benjamin as a political thinker. I don't know. I know the name Clifton Mark. Uh, is it Mark or Marks? Mark. He is a, I think, a CBC I think I follow writer, him. and he's uh, got that a name sounds PhD so familiar. He's got, he's got the best best educational pedigree I've seen outside of my wife, and uh, <laughs> it, he's a truly okay. exceptional writer. And but he who writes lifestyle stuff for CBC, really interesting guy. Oh, um, okay. He wrote this excellent piece for Aeon on uh, the meritocracy. It was pretty beautiful. But um, Andre is of course a regular contributor at McLean's, and uh, okay. I think Bronco Marcetic wrote the piece for Jack. Right. Okay. So, I mean, you said that you had a problem with the Jacobin piece and <laughs> yeah. you disagreed with the current affair pieces. So what, what's the deal? What were, why do you disagree? What did you think yeah. about the event? Yeah. So uh, first off, I think that one of the things that we saw was that people's uh, pre-existing sort of biases against uh, people who are a little critical of political correctness and the culture around critical correctness sort of imputed their own ideas about it through the debate. So I, I think that people mm. were giving a fair shake in their eyes, but I think that they really didn't give the actual strength of the uh, debate the full due. So I mean, I don't, I, for my own part, I simply don't think Zizek uh, is a lunatic. No, no, so. <laughs> no. I, I think that like there was a rigidity to the review that was in, in Jackman that uh, I was disappointed to see, to be honest, because I think they do some good work there. I think that. What do you think the source of the rigidity is? I think there's some fear about Zizek because he doesn't fall strictly into this sort of like neo-Marxian dialectic. He uh, mm. he's about emotion. He's about fucking. He's about thinking. He's about feeling. Those types of things are sort of ignored in the modern left, and I think that um, in many ways hmm. he's more evolved, but also more retrograde in, in their eyes. Yeah, I mean, I think Zizek is both not Marxian enough for these people, and also not sufficiently willing to toe the line, as he himself called it at the end of the debate, just political correct. And I don't think that yeah. that made him. Uh, or sort of put him in agreement with Peterson in the way that some people thought. So yeah, some of the solid. mainstream media reacted to the debate by saying, look, we wanted a debate. We wanted this big rumble. We wanted this big, uh, you know, someone to come out as the clear winner. And the mainstream media said, oh, well, actually, they just agreed on far more than they disagreed on and nobody won. And I actually think that that's 
not the case at all. And, <laughs> and, and really undersells what the sort of project that Zizek was trying to pull off. And to get back to the sort of being there aspect, I, I watched some clips afterwards just to get a sense of like, what did we just watch? You know, and uh, the next day we did some recap because we, you know, we thought this is an important time. I think this is actually more important than people think it is. In mm. the real time, in the people who are there, you could feel, and I'm a little bit of a hippie when it comes to this, but you could feel the sort of the emotions of people moving mm. from one area to another. I felt them open up to new ideas and you could feel mm. in just the warmth of the applause and the removal from sort of the polite affirmation that people were actually moving towards a more broad idea about what their sort of ethos was. And I think that that cannot be understated. I mean, that could be overstated. It could be, it's severely understated. It can't be overstated. <laughs> right. Uh, but real quick, I think Troy joined. Troy, are you there? Oh, great. I am here. Sorry, everybody. Hey, dude. Cool. So Troy is uh, is on the call with us. So we're just kind of first impressions and jumping in. So feel free to ask any questions or anything like that uh, when you are when you feel so when you feel the spirit move. Since we're talking about hippie shit right now, right? Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, so do you think? Because here's one of the things. So so I you know I don't want to talk too much shit, but uh, a very prominent scholar that I was uh, doing some. Uh, some work with was commissioned to do an interview on a new book uh, by Jacobin and after the interview they sent him an email a couple months later after kind of him not hearing anything from them and they said you know thank you so much for taking the time but we've decided that we're not going to publish this because we don't believe that this is the direction that the American left is going at the moment <laughs> and when I heard that I got really annoyed because that's felt a thing kind the of- American left <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's a whole. Right. Yeah. I mean, we'd love to come on again and just talk about that. I mean, I think I get what they're saying because he he wasn't advocating for like building class power, trade union kind of shit. It was a, a sort of a, a, a very different post Foucauldian, post Deleuzian kind of take on things. And so I understand where they might come from, but I got annoyed because it felt like they had a very narrow view on what they think leftist activism is or what left politics is. And so I wonder if this rigidity that you notice in the um, the article that you kind of talk about is, you know, they're, they're not as interested in, you know, Zizek talks about these sort of more emotive things. And um, I wonder if there's sort of like an austere kind of... Um, materialism that that characterizes the resistance to Zizek beyond just the ideological stuff which is more about like he's not Marxist enough or you know he's too Hegelian or too Lacanian or whatever but I think that all fits into this 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 problematic that they see as sort of circling around Zizek and so immediately there's like a resistance because he isn't within a sort of more classical political economy or critique of political economy way of uh of viewing politics yeah. and economic analysis do you think that's about right so yeah i can, i come from an organizing background so i like get the like nuts and bolts action. you know like i i understand how that works and i understand why people may feel certain ways about that i do think um because you know i am from a place that went twice for obama and then for trump that there are things about the sort of political ethos of the country 
in the United States that need to be inspired and they they're it's critical that people understand that there is sort of an aesthetics of how politics works in the United States and that it's not all about nuts and bolts all the time, even if we don't mm-hmm. want it to be. And one of my major criticisms of Jacobin, which I, I like very much, I like Megan Day over there, I like Liza Featherstone over there, um, Matt Brunig, uh, very friendly with, I like him a lot, I like Liz Brunig, you know, Bashkun Sarkara is a great guy. I Sometimes I think some of the takes are a little, like leaning a little heavy on that. And uh, mm. since you're from a sort of evangelical background, I can say this, and I think you'll be comfortable with this, is that I think that people who come from backgrounds that are a little more evangelical or a little more dogmatic then get in a more dogmatic mode of thinking. And mm. I fear that some people in the left movement in the United States are taking that sort of like evangelical ethos and applying mm. it to politics and carrying with it some of the morality and lack of fun. And I think that we could do better than that. Hmm. <laughs> so then you guys... I mean, and, and I, th- I also think that yeah, what, what sort of the expectation, not to cut you off, but sort of the expectations no, yeah. that these sort of whatever mainstream left, if that even makes sense, American outlets in particular expected, was simply, um, you know, Zizek himself is simply unreasonable and irrational, right? So the project, it's not like Zizek came in, you know, carrying the mantle of some unknown left who already doesn't like him, then he's supposed to try and save vis-a-vis Peter. <laughs> I think that he certainly himself was, you know, evidenced like a sort of allergy to that and was as much as anything imploring the left to be a little bit mean. Not, I don't want to say something as dumb as differentiated, but not only differentiated, but also like forgiving of itself. Right? Mm. And not just with respect to yeah. him, but with each other, I think. It, it's someone who's been, and I could say arguably a very nice person most of the life. I actually am a little more forgiving of people and, and their foibles and what they've done right and what they've done wrong. I think there's, as a longtime educator, I think there's a lot of room for evolving ideas. And I think there is a certain aspect that music touches on. And maybe he, because he's older and he's a little more is not necessarily seeing for what it is, but I think it does identify an issue that's really important is that we need forgiveness. I'm a, I'm a big believer in forgiveness. I'm an ex-Catholic. I have that sort of uh, contrition mentality. And I do think that people are, are, are healable, and I think that we need all the people who want to be healed. Well, yeah, I think, I think that this fits in with his Lacanianism. I mean, people, I think, part of the reason that the criticisms against him I feel oftentimes go awry is that they're trying to they're judging him from within a certain paradigm yeah. right and we're always criticizing from within our context and we're all, always sort of trying to navigate this complex relational field and they people think that he's kind of some sort of uh, like heterodox Marxist and on a, in a way he is but I would actually even go so far as to say he's not really even a Marxist much at all First and foremost, he's a Hegelian and he's a Lacanian, and it's the psychoanalysis. Yeah, and he said that outright. He, he and he's, well, I mean, and he's I, a, a child of Tito, and I, I spent some time in the Balkans mm-hmm. and I did some work in Serbia, and there is a different ethos about pleasure and a different ethos about 
how who you are in society relates to other people. And uh, I think in many ways they did the pleasure slash utility dynamic best in Yugoslavia. Mm. Sorry, we cut you off. No, I'm sorry. No, no, I, 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 no, no I think that's really interesting to add because I don't know much about uh, I mean, I know about a little bit about his history, uh, but it's more just like little stuff. Like he ran for president, you know, uh, came in like fifth place or something like that when when Slovenia gained independence and whatnot. Um, so I know a little bit about that, but I don't know much about uh, like post-Soviet Balkan culture, politics, etc. So I find that interesting, and it and it seems to fit in well because for him, it, it, it you say forgiveness, I, I would want to say that for him, it's probably about adjustment. Yeah. And what I mean by that is that's the psychoanalytic term, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, the, the the big criticism that he has with Marxism is that Marxism is still too, too teleological. As much as people want to say, no, you know, you can have a non-teleological Marxism, the point is, is that if you believe that overcoming capitalism is overcoming the, the mode of production, the last historical mode of production that is replete with contradiction, which is something that Marx himself says, if you buy that, then that means you have a relationship between the now and the future, and there is a linear, causal, teleological unfolding. And for Zizek, the point of his reading of Hegel and uh, maybe through his Lacanianism is that you will never overcome contradiction, and to try to overcome contradiction is an obsessive, neurotic impulse yeah. Yeah, exactly. um, that is resisting the real. Well, that's and extremely so for him, it, Is it? Yes, absolutely. Is it it kind of like a, hey, history is just shit, so we just have to make the best of it? No, I think there's like (laughs) this understanding that like your dire enemy is your your ally in the next war and that the idea is that Mm. we have more in common than we have in difference. And like, you know, you can take the Milosevic area and say it's very sad, but, you know, there was 60 years of relative prosperity for a region that's been in desperation for thousands of years. And Mm. uh, you have to think that there's something there. And I, mm. I hope in the future that there is some sort of lasting trade and peace and cooperation in that region. Because mm. I believe it's part Joy. of the soul of the, of the Balkans. <laughs> Which I know, Heidi is <laughs> laughing at me because she's, you know, she's a genocide scholar. So, <laughs> <laughs> Troy, did you want to jump in at all? Yeah, you guys were talking about that Jacobin article with the fool and the madman, right? Yes, yes. absolutely. Yeah, just to kind of riff on what you said, Austin, I think that's exactly right, that, you know, the the article seems to accuse Zizek of the, the liberal pessimism that has always been kind of a, a, at least a minor theme in Zizek's work and saying it's basically kind of as a disease overtaken and metastasized in, into his entire program. And that seemed entirely to miss the point of what Zizek was getting at and critiquing the notion of happiness um, that seemed to be the assumption of the entire debate, right? It's couched as happiness, capitalism, or Marxism. It was Marxism, right? Not socialism? Yeah, Marxism. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah as being a, the state where contradiction is is overcome finally, right? Or at least for a, a long period of time. And, and Zizek was kind of just trying to problematize that notion um, at, that we could achieve happiness either through you know, Marxism, capitalism, or anything else. Um, as a goal, and that that that's that obsessive um, project that uh, you're talking about, Austin, and to call that liberal mm-hmm. pessimism just seems to miss the entire point of of the internal critique that he's making. Mm-hmm. As if the point is to say we're just going to be miserable, so fuck it all. Like then why <laughs> why would you engage in debate if that's the point? Well, did you listen? 
did did you listen to the um, the Y theory episode on Signifier of the Left or the, his or McGowan's interview with Zizek? By the way, Troy. Yeah, yeah, I did. It was great. So, yeah. So for Heidi and, and David and for audiences out there, like one of my favorite podcasts is run by one of my favorite academics named Todd McGowan, who's a psychoanalyst. Uh, he's a film critic. He's a cultural critic. He's written one of my favorite books on capitalism ever. It's called uh, Capitalism and Desire. Um, he has a new book on Hegel that's out. He has a book on comedy. Um, anyway, he's fantastic, and he runs this podcast with uh, a colleague named Ryan. I can't remember his last name. But um, they actually interviewed Zizek before the debate, and Todd actually asks him. He says straight up, like, why do you even call yourself a Marxist, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, I, I kind of don't get it. Like, it doesn't really make much sense because you totally reject the idea that communism is actually an overcoming of these contradictions. And you seem to to come from a very different perspective. And why do you still use Marxism as this signifier to identify? And they don't really come to a conclusion, but but Todd and Ryan kind of um, kind of spitball afterwards about why they think that he's still wedded to it and it was kind of an interesting discussion, didn't you think, Troy? Yeah, I mean, I think the kind of obvious, maybe it's too obvious of an answer is just that uh, Zizek is like a like a spiritual Marxist, like he's mm. a he's a Protestant Marxist in a sense, um, and that maybe the the historical ties more or the ties more about historical continuity than it is about any like essential ideology that's shared. I mm. mean, is that is that just too too surface level? No, I mean, I almost wonder, too, to kind of use his own language against him, I wonder if it's kind of his uh, obsessive neurosis, in a way, or um, his, some, sort of, uh, some sort of symptom that he has because of his history coming out of, you know, Slovenia and because of him having gone through Marxism. So there's kind of like this dialectical sublation where it's retained and... It's almost like if Zizek were alive 50 years from now, uh, like if he were a post-Zizekian Zizek, like if he started his life now, he like wouldn't, he wouldn't even have gone through Marxism in a way, right? Like, like, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's almost like he uses it as a tool or a resource, but that it's merely part, just like he uses Christianity as a tool or a resource, you know? He's a, he's a Christian atheist, and he's a sort of like, Lacanian, non-Marxist, Marxist. Yeah, I think the difference though is Zizek's use of Christianity is really, really. Uh, I mean, I don't mean this in a negative sense, but it's manipulative, right? He uses it as a tool. And, well, and is it of, all? Is it, sorry? Is it all? Is it at all? What? What do you mean? No, I mean, is are we all using our religions to manipulate each other a little bit? I mean, I didn't mean oh, yeah. in a negative way. Oh yeah, I think Zizek would absolutely agree with that. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think he, he just kind of uses it like a rag doll and then throws it away. Um, but his his ties to Marxism seem a little closer or more intimate than that. I would think. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think I don't know. I mean, I, I anybody on the left, if if you're gonna if you're gonna have a left sensibility, you have to have some attachment to Marx, right? But but not not yeah. a sort of you know ridiculous religion-like adhesion that, that, you know, parts of the left feel like they need to have in order to justify their existence or something, right? And so in order to call themselves socialists or communists or whatever, rather than some kind of really deep form of, like, social democrat, you know? Mm. 
So I think there's a lot. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I think for at least for myself and like a lot of other leftists, we consider ourselves loosely Marxist, but not not wedded, you know, to it in any sort of way that would pass like uh, you know. We'd all get sent to the gulag, I think, on this call. I mean, that's for sure. I mean, I was, we yeah. could just go back to a moment for a moment to like, his, I mean, you guys tell me what you think about this, but what I found, so in general, I thought the last like 20 minutes of the debate were the most powerful, where Zizek kind of tie, tied it all up and really actually went, I, I thought, and I think David agrees, went quite hard at Peterson from an attack angle, but did it, you know, with a smile and with an encouragement and with an invitation <laughs> to discussion, mm. right? Um, which daddy, made daddy. it just Yeah, which made it so delicious, actually, to watch. Like, the whole energy of it was amazing. And part of what was so um, important for him was to sort of, you know, explain to, to Peterson why his own uh, theology, for, if, that, if that's a word we can use, right, his own... Mm -hmm. ideas about religion and religiosity and the divine were actually completely out of whack. And, you know, it's this commitment to a like transience of happiness that actually tracks the divine as sort of Kierkegaardian sense. Um, yeah. yeah. The other thing I wanted to, to mention is that I, I just to, to go back to the other point was that uh, I think his attachment to Christianity was ephemeral. Yeah, but I I think that Peterson's attachment was also a thumb. And when there was this discussion of the the resurrection, and you know, like I said, I was raised Catholic, so I'm very I'm used to st staring at those two bloody hands, you know. Mm. And I, uh, you know, so that sort of metaphysics is interesting. He had discussed the idea of the death and resurrection of Christ. And during that discussion, he had said there was one point where even Christ was an atheist. And mm. Peterson really glommed onto that. And I thought that was this kind of beautiful moment where you could see two adults, and you've all been in these discussions. You guys are really bright guys. So you've had a beer or whatever, and you've been sitting next to somebody at a bar or, or you know, next to a campfire, hopefully. And somebody says something, and then there's this moment where, like, oh. Maybe that mm -hmm. is something that I need to consider, and that was that moment where I thought it was really beautiful. And Dude, that that is my that is my erotic moment. Like, <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Like I crave, I crave, I crave those moments. Come to like, Canada, literally. We have some good friends. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. I mean, Heidi, you just used a phrase, transient happiness, that I thought was so interesting because. And this ties into to David's point, I think, because, you know, the whole point about happiness as being problematized from Zizek's perspective was, was key because it's the idea that happiness is maybe the very thing that is actually producing misery, yeah. the pursuit of happiness, the this this promise that we can get happiness, which... Peterson tries to problematize, but he ultimately says, but still capitalism is a system that best approximates, right? He almost uses like probabilistic lo logic. It's like, yeah, you know, if we're going to slay our dragons or whatever it is, you know, um, you, you can try to do that, but you're never going to actually overcome the chaos ultimately. So you just have to cling to some sort of fabricated foundation, the Jungian archetype, some sort of whatever, you know, Western democratic ideals. But Zizek is problematizing all of that, saying, no, you're still 
you're clinging to something to try to cover over the true anxiety, which is that we live in an economic system. We live in a world that produces transient happiness. And in that transience, it actually induces anxiety. And so <laughs> your very prescription is actually just inducing further anxiety by repressing the realities of that uh, uncertainty underneath. And this idea that God himself becomes an atheist is kind of opening it up to saying that, no, no, there is no other that ultimately can satisfy the, the conditions of anxiety of the human condition. And so we need to have a completely different framework. It's not your sort of quote-unquote classical liberal, really sort of conservative covering over, and neither is it the sort of liberal progressive PC, quote-unquote PC authoritarianism or whatever. <laughs> it's neither of those because both of them are just like symptomatic responses without actually dealing with, without actually being adjusted to, or as uh, David said a minute ago, without actually trying to find what forgiveness might mean in a substantive sense in relation to capitalism. And that was what I thought was really powerful because I almost, and I even texted with Heidi after the debate, and I'm totally such a fucking optimist, but I said, I almost even saw maybe if he weren't such a fucking charlatan and a grifter <laughs> that Peterson himself might even be like, like it might actually inscribe onto his psyche and it might change him a little bit, you know? Like I can imagine once he's made his millions and he's, he's sold his show that at the end of his life, he's kind of like, you know what? There was something to that, and he might actually become become more a Zizekian. Sort of... <laughs> yeah, he might. He I might. thought it was I beautiful to watch. I mean, honestly, <laughs> like, and, and and I think Heidi is always more skeptical, which I like about her. That's why I marry her. But but the fact is, when I saw that happening, and she even said when you texted, I was like, I agree. <laughs> I felt I saw that there was something kind of beautiful there, and I really believe in sort of like the apotheosis of. Of man, you know, (laughs) (laughs) which I really ditto, ditto, brother. (laughs) And so I I was like, you know, maybe we watched it. Oh gosh, you you guys know, like divinity is fleeting too. It's like happiness, Hmm. and I think that you know, everybody has that scare in their car where they said, you know what, I'm going to be nicer to my mom, and you know, I'm going to call call my girlfriend more often or whatever. But like, ultimately, like you know, that sort of Aired straight moment really changes and diminishes over time. Mm. I think my favorite moment came, like you were saying, Heidi, the last 20, 25 minutes or so was, I think, the best as well. Um, at one point, Peterson uh, kind of concedes the idea that happiness has to be a byproduct and can't be the sought after goal of whatever social mm. system we prefer. Um, and I thought he, he kind of gave up the ghost when you admit that, right? Because then his answer is, you know, you have to have some sort of like meaningful existence where you live responsibly with yourself and and with others in the world. And that has the necessary byproduct of producing happiness. Right. Um, Mm. and then Zizek in the, in a rare moment of actually being perspicacious and, and simple says, I mean, aren't there obvious times when you realize society or the world puts you in such a state that you can't act responsibly? that there is no answer, mm. that you're put in a double bind. Like that, that quote that he said a few times um, before in different works about, you know, can you tell someone in North Korea to put their house in order? Like you can't mm-hmm. live responsibly in certain situations. Mm-hmm. And doesn't that mean then that we have to change society in such a way that people can then be able to act responsibly and it's unjust when they're unable to or when it's um, imbalanced in terms of fairness between persons in terms of 
how they, they may act responsibly. Mm. And I thought, you know, that like rare moment of, of being very clear, kind of what do you say to that if you're of Peterson's ilk? I think you either have to just sort of embrace the naivete of, no, actually every other possible system we can think of will not be better than capitalism, which he does say, right? Um, mm-hmm. Or you just have to say, yeah, there, there has to be some sense in which we can change the social system um, to be better than mm. it currently is. And that's really what it comes down to is embracing naivete or being willing to think that there's other possibilities. Even if you embrace the naivete, I still think that there's potential for growth, right? Like even if you walk away from that saying, well, we just need to refine capitalism or we need to make it more pure or, you know, something like that. I still wonder if exactly what you're saying, Troy, if that still doesn't put, um, if it doesn't expose the chink in the armor, right? Absolutely. Like if it, just a little bit. And, And I know that I, you know, for as much as David, you called yourself a hippie and uh, Troy can attest to this, but I have like, even though I'm I'm not actually a pastor, I have this weird pastor's optimism that I always believe that people can learn, they can grow, they can be struck, they can be hit, right? I and believe that. I really do. <laughs> I, I mean, I've experienced it personally. Yeah. I've seen it in religious communities, people being converted into and out of religion, both yeah. in instantaneous shocks and in, you know, just uh, I use this phrase a few times on the podcast that I stole from uh, an a, a apologist, a Christian apologist back in the day. But, you know, you just get a stone in your shoe and you just yeah. you can't ignore it. Right. Like that's what I often say. I'm not trying to, like, create the event uh, when I'm discussing with somebody. I just want to put a stone in their shoe so that they can't ignore it so that when they're walking, they have to fucking stop and say, fuck, what is that thing? And then they have to deal with it. And you know, you know what, I, what I always like to say? It's actually, I have a de- this is actually maybe a little bit different uh, ideology, but like I always say, I want people to see a rose in their path. And I mm, want that rose yeah. to stick with them. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a positive way of putting it than the stone, <laughs> but I like that. that. I like that. Yeah. yeah. I'm annoying yeah. positive, which is funny because I'm a very snarky Twitter presence, but like. <laughs> you are very <laughs> snarky on Twitter. <laughs> in reality, I'm like, hey, what's going on? I'm great. You've yeah. got a joy about you, yeah. Um, so, what do you think? What do you think the outcome is? I mean, Heidi, you mentioned that you thought that this was actually like a pretty landmark cultural event. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I guess I probably said that to you right afterward, and I think it's yeah. pretty much true. And David and I have kind of kept talking about it in the few weeks since the actual event. I mean. Landmark in the sense that, one, despite the fact that everybody wants to, you know, say they're not talking about the so-called IDW or Peterson or whatever, they continue to do so. Um, and it, and that's not just rooted in the kind of real, you know, popularity of somebody like Peterson, which is actually real, but is also in the sort of consternation or like confusion or challenge that he engenders in, for lack of a better word, right? Like the left. I think the left Mm. is really maybe even more, this is a strong statement, but maybe even more so than Peterson fans, like actually really taken with this phenomenon. Um, And, 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 you know, there's kind of, I don't know what the perversion or something, some kind of perversion obsession that, Mm. you know, like maybe we need to work through, you know, like the what's the mm. what's the contradiction in, inherent to that obsessive obsessiveness 
that that we need to work through a and then b i think as we've already tried to say like i do think Zizek's challenge was much stronger than most people in the sort of mainstream media reports have been willing to admit. And I think anybody who, not anyone, but most of the people watching the debate sort of got that, that sense or that, or that energy. Let me, let, me, let me ask you this, Heidi. Do you think, so I had a friend, uh, an Indian friend here in Sydney, who he's, he's pretty intentionally trolly just in his entire outlook on things. He's a provocateur, right? Um, but he basically told me that he frequents, like, he listens to, like, neo-Nazi podcasts, and he engages with neo-Nazis quite a bit. And he's like, I have no problem engaging with them. He says, because when I go and I speak with them, he's like, I'm not a potential convert. I will always be marked by my brownness. Now, forget, like, the kind of fascist rise of Modi and whatnot yeah. in India. Yeah. Um, um, but, but he's like, but still, when a neo-Nazi, uh, when, when a, like a, a skinhead, like a white skinhead looks at me, I'm not a potential convert. He said, but you, Austin, with your shaved head and your German right. background, you're a potential convert. And so what I wonder, Heidi, do you think the thing that we need to work through in our obsession and maybe our fear with the IDW crowd is that we're afraid that we're potential converts, and so we have to fight as hard and as fast as we can to push them away so that we can make sure that we purify ourselves from them. That's Because so we're great. afraid that we could slip into becoming them. I think that's totally it. And so this conversation has been super helpful. I mean, it always is talking to you, but that's actually really evolved my own thought because there, I'm just looking at some of the notes I was taking before we started chatting and this you know, Peterson will, will always come back to this idea of responsibility, right? Taking responsibility for the consequences of your own action and what's going on around you. And I find like the, there's a way in which that, it might even be worse than what you just said, right? So there might be a way in which a sort of the totalitarianism, something like that, that we see in Peterson actually is part of the mainstream left. Right. Mm. So I think the, there are aspects, and I think that's what Zizek was getting at, right? Like there's a sense in which the left is relying on exactly those same tired, under-theorized, or perhaps not theorized at all, intentionally untheorized notions about responsibility mm -hmm. um, and understanding and commitment to like, uh, you know, value and truth that don't actually resonate with, quite frankly, I mean, for lack of a better word, like postmodernism, right? Mm. Maybe it could be yeah. I mean, like a non-postmodern Marxist or something. I don't know. I, I... Yeah, I mean, Baudrillard has this really funny phrase that is kind of odd, but he talks about um, how we've actually gone through, like, let's say that there's the end of history, mm -hmm. right? And that, that postmodernism marks, let's say, that end where uh, there's skepticism towards these modern meta narrative and we don't really buy the modern project and so we've run into the wall and Baudrillard says no no we've gone through the other side we're already on the other side and then the task is is what do you do it's not that there's something before us like that we're seeking the overcoming of contradictions or we're seeking communism or we're seeking some future progressive democratic ideal or anything like that or even just the process of progress in a linear sense but we've kind of already gone through the other side and we're looking back at the wall that we've just kind of broken through and i think that's a really interesting metaphor because i don't really know quite what to do with it but i think that kind of it's like a it's like a post postmodern non postmodern but you don't ignore the crisis 
of the postmodern, post World War II uh, emergence of neoliberal globalization, financialization. You don't ignore those phenomena, but you deal with them rather than looking forward, but through a sort of like. I heard somebody say this. I think they were quoting Mark Fisher, who says that uh, that you know you used to be able to kind of like build the future, but now we have to build our scaffolding from the rubbles <laughs> of the past. Yeah. And there's something really interesting about that. I don't I don't know exactly know if I love it, but nevertheless, it's still kind of <laughs> it, it it problematizes. I think how we kind of view the whole project of what it means to be on the left or what it means to be within the Marxist spirit or whatever you know emancipatory politics, whatever fucking phrase you want to use, it, it changes it a little bit. No, I think that's So I actually, like, I'm always the reach for the future. I really think that if we don't have a vision for what, you know, yeah, people always say we're beyond utopia or utopia is a nightmare. Um, I do think that we have to have a vision for what a better life looks like. And I think that so much of the left is such a reaction to what the terrible aspects of neoliberalism and they should be, like, because, you know, there are aspects. And I think if you talk to anybody in rural area in Pennsylvania or Ohio or West Virginia or in an urban area like New York or L.A., they know what those things are. And you have mm. to use those to speak towards a better future. And I think mm. one of the things that Zizek had said at the end, I'm very much summarizing this because he's far more eloquent, that if we care about today and we care about that we must look to. I think that's something that as people on the left, and I think anyone who's caring, whether you're Peterson fan or you're Shizek fan, we all need to look forward to that future. Think about like, just spend a few minutes a day thinking about what would a better future look like. We can do that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know, Heidi, you got to run because you've got a, another chat here in a, in a few minutes. So we'll, we'll let you take off. But um, Troy, did you have any final thoughts or anything before we uh before we let them go uh no just thank you guys so much for coming on sorry i missed the the beginning of it but um i'm sure it was just as fruitful as the latter half we're the no apologies kind of lefty so (laughs) (laughs) we're always forgiven here and then the no apologies lefties what do you guys think what are the final thoughts on this debate for people listening i mean what do you think are the biggest takeaways of the zizek peterson event I mean, honestly, I just think that if if people haven't watched it, actually, they should, and you know, <laughs> dedicating themselves to this. But but I actually think it was really fascinating, and I, I mean, hard for me to imagine, you know, having being in the shoes of somebody else's prejudices or my you know, package of of preconceptions. But um, and I of course had a you know, I'm a softy for Zizek. You know, that goes stems from my undergraduate you know philosophy education i just have you know mm. fond memories associated with him and i'll own that as well but i mean you know actually both figures actually did struggle with each other in kind of beautiful ways on stage and it was mm. you know i wasn't i wasn't necessarily expecting that do you think that Peterson had an impact on Zizek? Zizek, I think, clearly had an impact on Peterson and seemed to be like an immovable force because, like yeah. David said at the outset, he is kind of this larger-than-life figure. I almost felt like Peterson almost wilted under a certain kind of pressure. Do you think there was a reciprocal relation or like a, a mutual respect, or do you think Zizek still is kind of like, no, he's a clown? 
know if he respects him as such, but I had the sense, and I think that Cliff in his piece in Candleland said something, uh, made this analogy, it was like a, a prof having like his favorite student out to coffee. Or and <laughs> yeah, and it kind of felt like that. It was like, it was a, definitely a kind of, you know, elder intellect, you know, conversing with mm. someone who, who he considered to be lesser than himself, but it was with a sort of like, uh, at kind of admiration and like patience, I would say mm. that you might have for, you know, a really intense, but like well-meaning student. Mm. That's the question is, do you think that Peterson, cause I've had this discussion a lot with, uh, he was actually a guest on our podcast a couple weeks ago. My friend Darius here. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Peterson is sincere or do you think that he's totally just a grifter just trying to make I, the cash? Because if he is, if he is sincere, then I think that what I said earlier about him potentially having some sort of Zizek conversion later in life is possible. But if he's uh, not, then it's all just a game, right? Well, why, why can't he be both? Oh, see, I think that's a, that's a false dichotomy. I think that p- sincere people could be very wedded to their previous idea. And that even people who want to change, there's, yeah. there's an entropy of ideas that exists. And the longer you hold an idea, the harder it is to, to let go of it, even if the new idea is more powerful. And I think mm. that Peterson may over time change. Uh, I think that that's possible. But I think that when, especially the ideas that are most powerful are the ones you create in your own house. I think that Peterson has done a great deal. And yeah. so I'm um, more skeptical of the opportunity to change because he is in, in himself defined by those ideas that he has propagated out to the world. And those reciprocate back on him through those feedback mechanisms you know, YouTube live videos and, and speeches right. and applause. And uh, it's very easy to, when you eat your own dog food, to believe your own hype. <laughs> he is sincere in the sense that he believes it, but like he, he, he'll say these things like, here's what I wrote this down. He said, you need to stand on the edge of what you know and encounter the consequences of your ignorance. He's clearly unprepared to do that. Hmm. And maybe also unqualified. I don't think he's anywhere as near as like intellectually capable as Zizek. I just don't think he is. Of of course, I mean yeah. I think, and that I think that that's a real limitation, though, right? Like if he were smarter, yes. he would feel more comfortable, you know, actually inhabiting his own dictate. But this is the weird thing. This is part of the reason why I think he's actually so appealing is because he's yes. not not pseudo intellectual, but he's almost like a super intellect. Yeah. He's not. He's he's obviously smart. He's got a doctorate. He's taught at the university <laughs> level. We, like so, he's obviously got some level of like he he has he has know how and he has some knowledge, but he's not. He's not like cutting edge, insightful, no. intuitive. He doesn't have that. And so that makes him very sort of like appealing to somebody who, you know, isn't an intellectual. So and I yeah. think Zizek makes you realize that God exists and that you aren't him or her. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the problem with Zizek. The, yes, but, but it's the problem, but Peterson it's also. Zizek? Zizek. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the problem because it can sometimes fly over your head, but it's also it can be really productive because it can it can unseat you from your comfortable position. So Peterson is in like he he can give people comfortable morsels and pieces of candy that they can digest because they fit within the already existing kind of contemporary capitalist socio uh, political framework. But Zizek is like a fucking bomb that is erupting into it or a volcano that is exploding, and it's either too much. Or um, 
it and you have to ignore it or it's too much and you can't ignore it. Like you said, well, it's the rose in the path or it's the I, rock in the shoe. I think that shoe. there's, uh, you know, to get religious on this, I think that there's more resurrection in Zizek and there's more Sodom and Gomorrah and Peterson and I think people are going to find that country. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means. They know what it means. I like it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't I like it though. Well, okay, then let's just end on that. So Zizek is a uh, resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit, and uh, Peterson is doom and gloom, Sodom and Gomorrah destruction. I think I think that's that's a good way to to close it out. Um, we'll let you run. I know I know you got an interview. Uh, so thank you so much for squeezing us in here this evening in the East Coast. And you know, Troy, you missed this at the beginning, but we had a little brief intro talking about basketball so go raptors oh no, no. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much guys it's a pleasure as always absolutely a pleasure thanks yeah thank you guys all right so next we're moving into the sticky leaves segment of the podcast and this is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's giving us meaning in a potentially meaningless and contradiction fueled universe so austin what's uh helping to resolve your contradictions this week. All right, gentlemen, it's time for some more skincare advice. <laughs> These are honestly like uh, low-key, my favorite uh, sticky leaves from you. <laughs> All right, so previously I talked about the benefits of Manuka honey. So I have gotten into the habit where I don't even use any soap products on my face whatsoever, not even ones with moisturizing uh, lotions in them, nothing. I use water on a daily basis and two to four times a week, depending on if I remember and depending on um, like how my skin is doing, I use Manuka honey. So sometimes I'll do a Manuka honey mask where you go and I just, you know, do a nice rinse of water on my face, uh, get it nice and dry, just pat, don't ever rub on your face with the towel, just do a nice pat. And then I'll go and I'll put Manuka honey on my face for, you know, 20, 25 minutes, and then you go and you rinse it off. And one, it has antibacterial properties, so it cleans out your pores, it reduces inflammation, um, it reduces blotchiness, and it also hydrates your skin at the same time. Because those goddamn bees, or whatever the fuck they are, I don't know if they're hornets or whatever, but those New Zealand bees are miracle workers when they make their Manuka honey. So, uh, so that's basically how I clean my face. And then... So I'll do that maybe like once a week, the, the full mask. But then the other two to three times a week, what I'll do is um, I'll just like put it on my face because if I'm in a rush or something like that, I just put the honey on my face and then I go downstairs to take a shower and then I make sure that I don't get my face super wet. And then I just kind of like get my fingers wet and then I just kind of like rub it around like I would soap. And then that is my soap for that day. So it's still... Uh, cleans off oil and clogged pores and things like that. And I shit you not, my skin is so soft. It's almost like it feels pillowy when you touch it afterwards. It's ridiculous how soft it feels. Um, okay, but then here's what I'm going to add now. Then what I do is I don't put any sort of chemical lotions either on my face whatsoever. I've been using 100% argan oil for the past six to eight months. Now, I didn't want to say anything at first because I wanted to see long-term benefits, but I've been using 100% argan oil, and I will tell you that it is fucking fantastic. It's normally a so, shampoo, right? No, they put it in shampoos, um, but it because it's, it's basically just uh, an actual extract. 
but they put it into shampoos. But the problem is, is when you put it into shampoos, like they've got that Moroccan oil one. It's like got a blue bottle that I can see that I think has argan oil in it. And they can be good, but they mix it with a bunch of different chemicals, right? And I mean, I'm sure that that still has benefits, but just for your face, if you just put one little pump of argan oil so that it's nice and thin and you spread it over your face, first of all, it's 100% non-comedogenic, which means it won't clog pores. So if you've got sensitive skin, dry skin, if you're uh, prone to breakouts, it will not uh, clog your pores. Um, so it's a zero on the comedogenic scale. It goes from zero to five. Argan oil is a zero. Um, and also it's a dry oil, which means it won't leave your skin feeling slick, right? Now, I've talked about this before as well. Here's the new element that I'm going to add into this. I've recently been doing about once a month, maybe sometimes twice a month, uh, a microderm roller on my face. Do you know what this is, Troy? I know what a microderm is. I don't know how it's a roller. It's basically a little roller with tiny little needles all over it, right? Now, you can go to an esthetician and you can pay good money to get like a proper microderm peel where they will take needles that are about, uh, they, they, they have like, there's like uh, 0.25, I mean, I'm sure they have smaller, but there's like 0.25, 0.5, 0.75, 1, 1. 1.25, 1.5, and that's the length of the needle uh, in, in millimeters going up and down, right? When you go get a professional microderm experience, uh, you will get a pretty lengthy needle and it will make your face bleed and it hurts and it's a pain in the ass. But what it does is it uh, stimulates collagen production on your face. So it reduces wrinkles, it keeps things nice nice and smooth, um, and it just kind of like plumps your skin and makes it a little bit healthier because collagen is what kind of keeps things nice and tight, which is something that as you get older, your collagen production declines, right? Now, I'm if you want to go to a professional esthetician and get that shit done, that's great. But what I've been doing, again, I'd say over the past six months, is just once a month at least, uh, and at most twice a month, um, I've been doing a 0.5 at home microderm thing. And so what I'll do is I go take my shower, I just rinse my face with the water, again, um, and then, you know, you can do your honey thing. That's probably the best way to do it. Rinse your face, do the honey mask, go downstairs just so you get the full benefits of all of the good stuff going on in your face. Rinse it all off, then go upstairs, and then I take the microderm roller and you rub it on your face, um, go to YouTube and type in how to do it. But basically you divide your face into quadrants and you go up and down. Don't drag it across your skin because it's needles, but go up and down like a lawnmower in a pattern and do that all around your face and then go horizontal and then you can even go diagonal as well. And you're basically just like you would with a lawn when you're fertilizing it, how you go out there and you punch the holes into the ground so that the fertilizer sinks into the earth. You're doing that with your face. So you're one, you're creating little holes to stimulate collagen production, but two, you're also opening up uh, all of these little spaces. You're creating little abrasions all over your face, not abrasions, holes all over your face. Um, it shouldn't be abrasions because you're not scraping it, um, but you're cre creating little holes all over your face. And then when you put your argan oil or like your green tea, uh, your green tea oil or whatever it is that is your specialty, but I use my argan oil, then you put that on your face and then it soaks in even deeper. And it's been great, man. Uh, one, it's easy peasy. Like I don't spend a lot of time on my face. I I'm not using like lotions and all kinds of things all the time. And I do this, like I said, once a month, maybe twice a month. And you know, my skin's 
probably healthier than it's ever been. And it's not just me saying that. Like, I have, like, women that are constantly, like, first of all, dude, your hands are crazy soft. And I'm like, well, that's because I'm constantly putting argan oil on my face and my hands. And they're like, no, it's freaky weird how soft your hands are. And I'm like, well, yeah, because I got fucking soft hands, man. Um, but also, I, I've been complimented a lot lately about my skin. And for my age, I'm in my mid-30s, and people constantly think that I'm younger, and they're like, wow, your skin looks really nice and tight. And I'm like, yeah, man, it's because, you know, I got my natural remedies and shit. So, I just want to add a layer of depth now to the skincare regimen. There's the Manuka honey, the argan oil, and the microderm needle roller. Um, if you go higher than a 0.5, it's possible that you can, one, cause damage to your skin, um, but two, you will make your skin bleed. And if you go below a 0.5, it might not be enough to actually stimulate collagen production. 0.25 can be good, but that's more for just taking in uh, the product deeper into your face. But it won't actually stimulate collagen production. You need 0.5 or more to stimulate collagen production. But over a 0.5, one, it will hurt. So you get some people that you'll see on YouTube that talk about them using like numbing creams when they're using their derma rollers because they use like 0.75 or ones even, a one millimeter. But I just use a 0.5. It hurts a little bit. And your skin will go like bright red after you do it, like especially if you're a white boy like me, and I'm not tan right now because it's fucking winter here. Uh, so after I do it, my skin is like cherry red. But the next day, uh, as long as I blast that argan oil all over my face, the inflammation is down and the redness is pretty much all down. Maybe a little bit redness the next day, but it's not really bad. And then two days after, it's totally fucking fine. And then uh, just make sure you clean the thing with alcohol. And just like I said, go to YouTube and you'll find out ways to do that. But men, take care of your shit, man. Uh, your partners, whether dudes or chicks, will appreciate it because you got soft hands, soft skin, soft face, whatever. So that's that's my uh, sticky leaves. Microderm so rollers. We're gonna, we're gonna flash forward to like 2027 and you're going to be talking about buying an iron maiden off of ebay to uh torture yourself your body. into yeah exactly for full body no, yeah uh, full body stimulation <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then flash yeah, forward again to 2040 and you're talking about we have the biotechnology to regrow limbs and so you're talking about how to best sever your limbs so as to regrow back uh with the most best stimulation of stem cells the people who have money, like the Kardashians and shit, they're doing stuff like that. I mean, not <laughs> like full-on chopping off arms and stuff, but they're basically doing that at a smaller scale. Like they, they have so much money that the stuff that they're doing um, – so my ex, when I was in L.A., went to the same um, – I guess it's it's not a skin doctor. He's a – God, what the fuck is he? I forget the name. Uh, he's, he's a non-invasive surgeon, but um, – he so he doesn't do he doesn't do like plastic surgery, but he will do fillers and things like that. Um, but he's the Kardashian doctor. His name's Doctor Urian, uh, O U R I A N. He's been on like Doctor Oz and Oprah and shit like that. He's super famous. But the the technology that they have, especially with this cutting edge stuff that's non invasive, it, it's like something out of a fucking science fiction film, you know? Because it is basically. <laughs> It's like you're creating humans, but in a way that isn't it isn't pure cyborg stuff like you're you're like adding stuff that is, I don't know, like silicone based onto the body. You're still using carbon based processes, but uh, and sometimes it's not. like they he does, like I say, inject fillers and stuff like that. <laughs> sometimes but a lot it's just of it is just shit. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, that's just alien shit. But a lot of it is just how to naturally stimulate the processes of your body, but in an enhanced way, you know? And so it's fucking, it's crazy, man. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But easy peasy. I don't have a lot of time for that shit. And I don't like to take a lot of time. So I know a lot of dudes, they're like, fuck it, I don't have time. And that's, that's, that's girl shit. No, man, take care of your skin. When you're 60 and it's all like saggy and your skin's constantly dry and it's cracking, it also, it's, it's preventative because if your fingers, like if, if your cuticles are dry, you don't, that can hurt and then it can bother you. And, you know, it's just a way to also preventatively make sure that at least your skin isn't degraded. And yeah, you know, I'll okay, go on to counter argument you know, really quick. Okay. All right. Um, saggy skin is a necessary condition for being a good philosopher when you're old. Well, from the neck down, I'll have saggy skin. And then my face will... I'll be like George Hamilton. I'll have a super tan, youthful face, and then my body, when my shirt's off, will just be like, you know, normal. And yeah, it, it, it just it symbolizes how much ideas have wrung your head through the ringer, right? So that's, that's the, it's a symbolic or, you know, signifier of true philosophical endurance and perseverance. Yeah, it's like I tweeted. You're forever going to be was, an assistant professor, dude. Yeah, I'll never reach the pinnacle. <laughs> uh, what if I grow a huge beard, though? Like a big, gnarly gray beard. Dude, I, I want to see it. I'll believe it when I see it. All right. All right. But yeah, man. Um, and I know some people, they do the, the skincare stuff, like the, the microderm roller on their neck, which is good too, to keep the neck kind of youthful because the skin on your neck and your upper chest is very similar to the skin on your face. So you need to make sure that you're careful with that sensitive area as well. But, you know, like the people with all the money, like I said, like the Kardashians and the other, the models and just people who are, or the people that just say, that use all their money on this stuff because they're really, they're really concerned about like physical aesthetic upkeep. Um, they'll do this shit all over their body, like on their backs. So, on their backs and on their chest and I don't know about arms and legs, but like they will do like full body abrasion peels and shit like that to make sure that they're like, that's why supermodels legs are so fucking shiny and perfect. You know I mean? Part of it is genetic. Part of it is diet. Part of it is exercise. But another part of it is they have amazing resources to spend on skincare upkeep, you know? Yeah. You know, I've been told before that my voice and cadence changes when I talk about basketball on the podcast. Oh, I God. feel like the same thing happens when you talk about skincare. Oh, no. You're just in the flow, man. The flow of thought. Am I? <laughs> I, I mean, it's just a part of me. It's an extension of my being. What can I say? <laughs> Not bad. Uh, it's good. But it's really cheap. Yeah, and, it, and it's really cheap, and it's really easy. Uh, the Manuka honey, I have had my jar of Manuka honey for like nine months or something ridiculous like that. And I think I bought it for like 16 bucks. So it's lasted me ages. And then the microderm roller, you can get cheap ones for like five bucks online. Um, but you got to buy new ones every, every couple months to make sure that, you know, the needles are good. And then you get a little thing of, of uh, alcohol just to make sure you keep the needles clean, both before you put it on your face and after. But then make sure you rinse it because you don't want to stab your face when you've got uh, alcohol on it. Cause then that'll make it hurt. <laughs> um, and it'll dry out your skin because alcohol dries out your skin. So then make sure you rinse it. Um, uh, and then what else? Uh, bah, 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 bah. And then the argan oil. I buy like a bottle of argan oil maybe once every two, three months, and it costs about 15 to $20, depending on where I get it. So again, it's super cheap. I'm not buying 
soaps for the face. And I'm not buying lotions and stuff like that. So it's actually really cheap uh, in terms of being able to kind of take care of your skin. So check that shit out. You're welcome, dudes. And of course, ladies, I mean, I'm assuming that you already have a little bit of knowledge uh, about skincare stuff. But if you're someone who doesn't really take care of your skin that much, or if you're looking for natural remedies, you as well can benefit from these things. Of course, I am not a doctor and I'm not a trained esthetician, so go on YouTube and check out uh, people who are actually trained in this shit so you can make sure that you know the proper procedures for doing the microderm stuff if you're going to do that. So, Sweet. Sweet. Well, that's it for this episode. Uh, just a reminder that if you want to support us and uh, value what we're doing, you can go to patreon.com slash dawn and support us in a couple different tiers there and get access to bonus content we produce, newsletters, as well as the ability to vote on future patron-sponsored episodes. Yeah, yeah. And you can also hit us up on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn. Also on Instagram, you can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com if you've got any questions. Well, I think that's pretty much it, man. Unless there's anything else we got to say. Just one more thing, dude. Oh, what's that? Das Vidanya, Marikonski.